0: Hey, creepy people. This is p Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel Thirteen. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have, Have a, a creepy ass day. Are you looking for a meditative craft to do while you're listening to our podcast? Pacific Northwest based fiber artist Melissa Galbraith of M Creative J has just the thing. Her nature inspired embroidery kits are the perfect way to stab out your frustrations while creating something beautiful. No matter your experience level, M Creative J's kits will guide you through the process from start to finish. With designs like moths, Pacific Northwest mountains, cacti, and houseplants, you're sure to find a relaxing modern craft project. Shop M Creative J at mcreativej.com and find Melissa on Instagram at mcreativej. Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise. Every other week, I'll share a true crime case from my hometown, the Pacific Northwest. And sometimes my cat, Winston, joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Alex here. I'm not alone in this episode, as I'm joined by the lovely Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. Hey, Alex. And this week, we're doing kind of a little bit of a different episode. We're not going to be discussing distractions or catching up or anything because we did that before we hit record. <laughs> but instead, we are going to be focusing on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Both Elise and I have talked about different missing, murdered Indigenous women cases on both of our shows. And I think we both have a passion behind talking about these cases and wanting to become more educated about these cases. And so I'm going to kind of pass the book over to Elise to drop some more education on missing murdered indigenous women in North America. And after she's done that, I will get into my case. And Elise, you'll cap us off with your cases because you have a couple short ones, correct?
0: Yeah. So I think a good starting off point is although we're focusing on North America, it's not just limited to these two, particularly these two countries, the United States and Canada. But I think we see just a lot of numbers here. And so that's kind of why we're, I mean, we obviously live in both these places too. And so it affects the community as a whole. And there's been a lot of outcry from these communities about their family members, their mothers, daughters, grandmothers, just getting more coverage. I just saw the other day the woman who was jogging. Oh, yeah. yeah. Completely deserved to have coverage of her case. Agreed. But at the same yep. time, she was a white woman. Yep. Blonde hair. Yep. It's It gets frustrating. And so I I tend not to follow those cases as closely because I know that the rest of the world is watching Yeah. And I want to cover the cases the rest of the world isn't watching, but should be. Agreed. Yep. So with all that being said, I was, I've kind of known some of these statistics, but it still hurts to hear them. So according to the Canadian encyclopedia website, Indigenous women... 15 years and older are three times more likely to experience more frequent and more severe violence than non-Indigenous women, which is just a lot. And then on top of that, between 1997 and 2000, the homicide rate for Indigenous women was nearly seven times higher than the rate for non-Indigenous women. Holy shit. Seven times? Seven times. Seven times. Wow. Okay. I mean talking about that other case of the jogger mm-hmm. when they're already at a disadvantage regardless oh, of your 1000%. Yeah. Yep. And so yep. coupled on top of that you add this layer of ethnicity and race mm-hmm. and now you're even more disadvantaged. I mean 7 times is a lot.
1: Yeah, for lack of a better term, the more minority you are, the more of a walking target you become, right? So imagine if you were an Indigenous woman, maybe you are, I don't know, you identify as not heterosexual, maybe you have mental health, substance use, whatever. The more you add on to that plate, the more of a target you become, which is just, it's not, it shouldn't be that way.
0: But unfortunately, as I'm sure you'll get to, it it definitely is right. So I'm glad you touched on that because there's been some different reports about kind of the the five issues that really affect missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And part of it is the culture of misogyny, right? That there is. They're very even if you go back to the Disney version of Pocahontas and things like that, they're very sexualized and. That creates this, I mean, it's, we see it even just, like I said, in women across all ethnicities and races. Women are just highly sexualized in our culture. Yeah, But sort of these more minority women, Hawaiian women, just women of color in general can often be extra sexualized. Mm-hmm. They're like seen as, quote unquote, exotic. Right. And so that just I feel like when you over sexualize somebody like that you're also just kind of saying that that's their main purpose and you can kind of do with them what you please. Yeah. Because you're just kind of seeing them as that object instead of an actual person.
1: Yeah. And once someone is objectified that it's easy to do whatever you want to them because you then have removed any potential remorse or guilt or any kind of any kind of thought I guess that would make you say oh this is bad Mm -hmm. right it's it just makes it easier for people who do that who
0: do objectify to just do what they do and move on and not give a shit yeah absolutely and One of the other things that I know just in my personal coverage of these cases that I've learned, and even in law school, I took an Indian law class, Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that they really focused on was this historic kind of removal of Indigenous children from their parents. And placing them into white families to raise. And then on top of that, so you have this mass removal of children being put into the foster care system. But then the parents that they're taking these kids from, those parents often went to the residential schools. And so there's all these layers of trauma and just removal and disregard. Just treating them as second-class citizens, it's just forcing that. And continuing it just through different methods, almost over time.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because we, as I am speaking as somebody who my ancestors settled came to Canada, right? I my I know on my dad's side I'm from Norway. My mom's side it's probably somewhere in Europe. Who who, who friggin knows? But we came to we settled in Canada and we made those that were there before us being Indigenous folks, we made them second-class citizens to a land that they already had before we came, right? So it's It's once again that level of objectification and just removal of their identity because it's, oh, I want what you have. You're not not actually a person, so it doesn't really matter in my mind. I'm going to take what I want. And it's just, it's for lack of a better description, it's kind of a child taking somebody else's spot on a school bus, right? It's, oh, I want to sit close to the back where all the cool kids are, and I see you're in my spot, so get out of my spot. It's no. Somebody else was there first. Leave them alone. Go sit where there's a spot left and move on. But settlers have a hard time doing that. (laughs) And so do children, especially brats. (laughs) Right. And people
0: are brats. That is absolutely 100% true. (laughs) So another one of the big issues I wanted to touch on that, again, I kind of learned through my Indian law class and then again kind of reinforced through my own research of these cases is there's an inadequate police response to these victims. But at the same time, there's also complicated jurisdictional issues that also play into that. So there's some instances where state and local police of the particular county or state don't have any jurisdiction on the tribal land. Mm. And then there's also situations where the tribal police that are on the tribal land might not have jurisdiction. Oh, that's confusing. Super confusing. And then there's often times where the FBI could get involved because they're kind of the federal government's police force, essentially. Right. But they're not involved in all cases. It's very select what kinds of cases they can be involved in. And it just it's a very complicated picture. And part of the problem is there's often times where non-tribal police can't get involved and tribal police don't have the resources and yep. possibly don't have the care or concern. I don't know. But mm-hmm. resources especially, I know, aren't there for them to kind of. Yep look for these people.
1: Exactly. And it kind of puts them in a sticky situation because they're more times than none the first responders speaking for tribal police. And yet I almost wonder if there's many situations where they're kind of there just being, uh, we don't know what to do because X, Y, Z, we don't know how to handle this or we're not trained to deal with this or we have to wait to see if state troopers or in Ontario, if the Ontario Provincial Police or the Mounties, if someone else needs to get involved. And that can mean life or death in some situations. That could mean tampering of evidence. That could mean just so many different legal headaches for everybody involved. And it would make way more sense if there was more of a clear-cut path in terms of jurisdictions. Right.
0: And I will say a a lot of it is just how our country has kind of treated Indigenous people. From the beginning, they're kind of in the charge, at least in The United States, they're in the charge of the federal government. And so for sure, the state and local authorities are last in line to have any kind of jurisdiction on tribal lands simply because federal government always trumps the states. Right. And so it just it's frustrating because there's, again, this reinforcement of distrust of law enforcement and of governmental authorities because the families don't get answers. They don't get help. Mm -hmm. Nobody's looking for their loved one. Nobody's trying to solve the case. And he said it just obviously they're going to pass on those beliefs to their children and it's just going to continue on this distrust and there's no working relationship that they can have because the family doesn't see them as doing enough or anything in some cases.
1: Right. The relationship's already sour. And once it's sour, it's really hard to make it kind of stable, right? It it kind of goes for a lot of situations. I mean, for folks trying to understand, think of it as, I don't know, similar to if you're in a relationship with somebody and someone cheats on you, that, that trust out the window. Foundation's broken. And so when you hear of Indigenous people not trusting police and everything that or government officials, it's sad to see people responding that aren't Indigenous and don't understand what kind of complicated history that is. Oh, suck it up. It's not that big of a deal. You don't, you don't know. You have no idea and you can't even try to begin to understand the complexity
0: of that relationship and how bad it's gone. It's very similar to the relationship that African-American people have with police. Yep. It's obviously it's not something that I personally have experienced because I'm not African-American, but I know enough people who have had experiences to understand what it means to them when they Mm-mm. have encounters with police. Exactly, yeah. And I understand why there's communities that don't trust the police and they teach their children not to trust the police. And you said there's a lot of criticism of that, but I, I think you're right. When you don't have experience being in that person's shoes, mm. that is literally the definition of privilege for one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for two, I think you and I, even though we haven't had these experiences, mm-hmm. I think we can both take a step back and say, I'm not a person of that particular race. But at the same time, I can understand why you would have hesitation when you're going into X situation where there might be police or X situation where you might be dealing with this authority. Yeah. I haven't experienced it, but I understand where you're coming from, why you don't think that police will help. And honestly, in the cases we're going to cover today, I completely understand why. Oh yeah. Have faith. (laughs) Yeah. So the last thing I'll touch on before I let you go is. Okay. I just wanted to kind of ask, I know that there was this big push in 2019, and I kind of know your answer just because (laughs) the pandemic happened right after this, but I know that was a big time where the prime minister is kind of launching this national inquiry, all of that. Has there been any change in your mind since then? If there has been changes, it's been muted by other news, right?
1: And I say that in the sense of it's not front page news anymore currently as of today's recording, right? So when the unmarked graves came up from former residential schools across Canada, of course, it was front page news. Everyone was talking about it. everyone was outraged, baffled, confused, upset, angry. I think since then, there's just been a couple murmurs here and there, a couple Coverings, what have you. But from my perspective, I haven't seen as much legal change or legislative change. I have seen more people speaking out. I've seen more coverage on Instagram of highlighting Indigenous creators, trying to highlight more Indigenous shops, Indigenous just people in general. But I think to answer your question, not as much as I think there should be given all of the horrifying shit that's gone on. And my hope is that if I do ever have children, that they live in a world where they are fully educated and aware of the Indigenous history, not just the white person's history, not just our history, but everybody's history. And it's celebrated more and it's respected more and it's approached with a more empathetic standpoint for a mass population as opposed to I don't know just those that have empathy and give a shit, I guess. I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it's it's it's
0: been interesting. I wish there would be more, but I, time will tell. Yeah, I think that's something I've noticed as well, just on the US side. Anything that I've seen kind of quote unquote blow up has been on the social media side and more of different regions, yep. particular locales, but nothing on the national widespread scale. Not to say yeah. that things can't be done at the local level, but because it's such a s- systemic issue that affects people from all across the country, all across Canada, it's not just these women are only going missing from British Columbia. and uh-huh. Exactly. Like, no, it's happening everywhere. And so it's incredibly frustrating, but obviously like we have better things. "Quote unquote" to worry about in the United States, aka, yeah. don't care about anybody. Yep. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> unless it brings a crap ton of money and profit to feed into this capitalist wheel well that exists, because that that's what it all falls back to is capitalism. Oh yeah, right. And so, as long as it's not in participation with that, we won't really hear much about it. Well, now that we've depressed everybody, Alex, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's only going to get worse. Well, cool. <laughs> this week I'm going to tackle the unsolved murder of Helen Gillings, and Helen's murder is a part of many missing and murder Indigenous women cases, and hers is actually out of my home province of Ontario, Canada. As a heads up fine details of Helen's life and case are not really publicly known. They're not, it was really hard to find information. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. It took me a lot of sleuthing and I don't call myself an internet sleuth for many reasons, but yeah, it took, it took a lot to try and figure things out. And I might've made this a lot in true crime cases too, because I'm not a journalist. I'm just a millennial with a microphone that decided to make a podcast one day. <laughs> Many people. <laughs> if I, if anyone tuning in knows more about Helen, if I missed anything, if I screwed up, please let me know. You can always email me at com. I'm always up to hearing criticisms or feedback. Corrections, anything to that nature. Even though information is kind of sparse, I still wanted to discuss Helen's case just to kind of hopefully breathe some life into it and educate le- listeners about it. Due to potential coarse language, discussions of murder, and other adult themes, listener discretion is always advised. You might have already picked up, it's going to probably be a little bit of a heavier episode, but it's an episode that we need to talk about despite it being heavy. Yeah,
0: I think yeah. that <laughs> there's often this hesitancy to shy away from heavier things. Mm -hmm. But I think in this case, it's not as heavy to me just because there's such a bigger issue at play. Yes, somebody is missing or yes, somebody is murdered. But at the same time, what we're trying to focus on is we need to get them answers. We need to find them or we need to find Mm -hmm. who murdered them. That's what's the focus, not on the murder itself. Exactly applicable. But it's it's about getting those answers and that information.
1: I think you actually touched upon this early on when you said the 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 case where the woman, i and I apologize, I forget her name at the top of my head, but she was recently murdered while out jogging, right? She was a white woman out jogging. We've heard it before. It's an unfortunate reality. And I think if we could highlight some of, if not all of these murdered and missing Indigenous women cases, as much as those cases, as much as the Gabby Petito cases, as much as the Black Dahlia cases, those kind of cases where a white woman is involved, if we could just take that mentality or that energy and push that into these cases as well, as well as other cases involving people of quote-unquote minority status, I think we could do a lot of good in actually maybe getting some answers to these families, these friends, people
0: that want to know what happened to their loved ones, right? Yeah, and I don't know if you've done this on your show. I just recently have kind of started getting into contact with investigators or family Mm -hmm. members, and I've just recently kind of heard that they seem a lot more willing to be kind of interviewed or yeah, complications with podcasters, because I think they realize the power of a podcast, you know, even a smaller one, you or I were obviously not the big ones out there, but we have loyal listenership and it's, I'm sure for you as well, it's across the world. It's not just in Canada for you. It's not just in the United States for me. Yeah. Well, there's people all over listening to our shows that could have information or just even sharing it Mm -hmm. to someone that might have information. We have a broad network of listeners that hopefully are sharing these cases, having other people listen to them, just getting to a new almost generation of people to try to listen. Because I don't know about you, but I don't watch the news. Nope. (laughs) I can't (laughs) scan the news.
1: Gives me mad anxiety. I can tell you that for free. And (laughs) to speak to that notion, I think that's a great idea to reach out to family members, to reach out to private investigators or just investigators in general. I have not yet done that. I just... And it's, it's kind of contradicting because it's, like, well, why would you cover a case without talking to the, to somebody that's in, involved with it? But for me, it's if someone wants to listen and then reach out, I feel more comfortable with that. And if anyone ever reaches out and says, hey, you covered my sister or you co- you talked about so-and-so on the show and I'm their family member and I don't want, I don't, I want you to take it down, I
0: would take it out in a heartbeat. mm mm-hmm. So yeah, I think moving forward, it's something I want to do. Yeah. And I'm just being transparent on my side. Yeah. The only reason I did in my case is I'm covering it for the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Mm-hmm. And there just isn't a lot of information about the victim themselves. Right. And so I sort of wanted to approach it in that way with the family, not necessarily talking about what happened to her because obviously I can find that pretty readily. I want to know more about her. And then from the investigator side, that's where I can get those investigative questions. And it's not as crying, I feel, because I definitely have the same problem. And this is why I've waited so long to do it, is I never want to feel I'm invading somebody's privacy or disrespecting them in any kind of way. And I would also absolutely take something down if they said, oh, yeah, that's out there. I actually had somebody reach out about information that I had gotten wrong in a case. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled the episode, redid it, and re-released it with yeah. the corrections and everything because that's what you do when somebody reaches out
1: mm-hmm. and exactly.
0: Says, hey, you got this wrong. And I think that's part of reframing what we do as more ethical true crime. Yep, exactly. A lot of people, I have to listen to crime podcasts. Everybody else does. But at the same time, the things that were... Talking about and describing are probably the worst thing that happened to somebody's family. Exactly. And so it's it's walking that fine line. Between. it really is i
1: just never want to offend anybody i'm one of those annoying people it's oh my god i'm so sorry oh my gosh i hope i don't offend him i really am because my at the end of the day i'm doing this because i want to educate myself i want to educate others and when it comes to the true crime aspect of the show probably similar to you at least just want to breathe life into cases that no one really is talking about anymore or they have talked about it and it's hey let's talk about this case again. But let's look at it at a different
0: viewpoint, right? Just being transparent on my side. The only reason I did in my case is I'm covering it for the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't a lot of information about the victim themselves. Right. And so I sort of wanted to approach it in that way with the family, not necessarily talking about what happened to her, because obviously I can find that Mm -hmm. pretty readily. I want to know more about her. And then from the investigator side, that's where I can get those investigative questions. And it's not as prying, I feel, because I definitely have the same problem. And this is why I've waited so long to do it is I never want to feel I'm invading somebody's privacy or Mm -hmm. disrespecting them in any kind of way. And i would also absolutely take something down if they said, "Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, that's out there. I actually had somebody reach out about information that I had gotten wrong in a case." Mm-hmm. And so I pulled the episode, redid it and re-released it with yeah. the corrections and everything because that's what you do when somebody reaches out.
2: Mhm. Exactly.
0: "Hey, you got this wrong." And I think that's part of reframing what we do as more ethical true crime. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. As, yeah. yeah. Just you said respecting those boundaries. Um, because I realize a lot of people I have to listen to True Crime tr- tr- podcasts, everybody else does, but at the same time, the things that we're talking about and describing are probably the worst thing that happened to somebody's family. Exactly. And so it's, it's walking that fine line, but it really is. It really
1: is. And I don't know about you, but I've been so scatterbrained about it because with this conversation coming out, I mean, from the get go, I think when Christy and I started the show, we always tried to be very ethical about it. And I think there have been times where in editing or looking at previous episodes, it's, like, oh, that, that isn't sitting well two years down the road. And that's two years down the road. Right. So I think the takeaway for listeners from this is as true crime podcasters especially indie true crime podcasters we're writing our scripts we're doing the recordings we're editing we're doing everything kind of on our own we're also learning this process too and if there's something that isn't sitting well or isn't doesn't seem right let us know let's have an open conversation about it and I think if it comes down to a family member or a friend reaching me hey you you said this in this episode this is actually wrong can you kind of clarify this more I think those conversations also need to be had too because nine, nine nine times yeah nine times out of ten we're also just reporting what we hear
0: or sorry not what we hear but what we see online Yeah, and I know that you're really good at our show is about saying, hey, I read articles for this, or I read a book or watched a series or whatever, and they reported this in one source and this in another source. So I don't actually know what's true because things were reported differently. And so I think you and I are both really good about saying that up front too. And I think that's important not just sort of taking one as the gold standard because it was reported somewhere. I tend to think that unless it's in a court record or a police record, some kind of authoritative record, I don't really take it as gospel. So that's just how I- (laughs) That's just how we
1: roll. (laughs) And we're gonna see a lot of those discrepancies in this case of Helen. So discrepancies end once again lot of fine details of information so i'm actually unsure as to when helen was born but based off what i read i suspect that she may have been born sometime in seven or 1976 or at least in the late seven or in the late 70s helen was reportedly born in kenora ontario which is a northern city within the province of ontario of course According to their website, the city was originally the land base of one of one collective First Nation community, which was separated into three communities now known as the and I'm probably I'm I'm hoping I'm saying this correctly. I did Jolly Phonics it because once again, I'm I'm a white woman. (laughs) I I struggle with my own English language on the on the best of days. But yes. So, three communities no, now known as the Wajisk Onigum community, the Nisashiwan, and the Wa'agum Is Bay First Nations. Apologize <laughs> profusely. I am so sorry if I mispronounce any of those. Please bear with me. Anyways. From what I gathered, Helen had a younger sister named Stephanie. The two girls were both Indigenous. However, I'm unsure as to which band they may have been associated with. It didn't say. All it said was that the girls were Indigenous. Helen and Stephanie would be apparently adopted by Wendy and Burt Gillings when Helen was about four years old. And I don't really have much information about Helen and Stephanie's biological parents, but many accounts have claimed that they reportedly died shortly after, or sorry, shortly before the adoption was made official. The two girls were raised, along with the Gillings' own son, in a small farm town of Sundre, Alberta, which is reportedly about 100 kilometers north of Calgary. So they were born in Ontario, they get adopted into Alberta, which is about two provinces over from Ontario. Eh, not probably not great probably a big culture shock in the sense of Ontario and Alberta are two very different provinces I mean we have the same Canadianisms, but they're just very different uh, Ontario is always known as being like city based and I don't know whatever and uh, Alberta is kind of the yeehaw <laughs> aspect of it and that's just my own descriptors of it like it, it, c- could be
0: very wrong I can't find those on an official website somewhere.
1: (laughs) I cannot verify (laughs) that based on any confirmed documentation. (laughs) So the Gillings reportedly weren't Indigenous, and there wasn't a big Indigenous community in Sundre when Helen and Stephanie were there. By age 12, the Gillings reportedly claimed that Helen began running away from their home. Two years later, Helen was allegedly out of the home and living on the street. By age 16, Helen reportedly moved back to Ontario and resided in the city of Toronto. That's where she supposedly met a man named Jerry Newman, who was, some accounts claim, five years older than her. The two reportedly met while being on the streets, so I'm assuming they're kind of living rough. They're downtown Toronto, maybe living in shelters, but who knows, it didn't really say. By 1994, aka when I entered the scene... (laughs) (laughs) the two would move just over an hour west from toronto to hamilton ontario so hamilton is another city in southern ontario i actually went to college there it has some nice parts some not so nice parts it has its ups and downs kind of every city or even every town the town i grew up in has some nice parts and some not great parts i feel that's kind of everywhere everywhere every part Every city, every town has its... This is where you walk freely at night, and this is where maybe you walk with friends. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is where you just don't. You just don't walk alone at night. So the couple supposedly moved into a place on Wilson Street before welcoming their first child, a daughter who was born sometime in the spring of 94. When it came to work, I think Helen may have felt as if she didn't have a lot of choices. I mean, she left home, I believe, at 14. She was back in Ontario living rough by 16. It's not really clear to me that she had an education.
0: I was just gonna say, I know that you don't have a lot of information uh, about her, but it just kind of sounds from everything you've shared so far. She probably isn't going to school. And certainly if she's away from her adopted family, nobody's probably making her go to school.
1: Yep, exactly. And it's that time of that that generation where There wasn't a a truancy officer, right? If you just didn't go to school, you just didn't go to school. As far as I know, I don't know, it was the 90s. I I think if you just didn't go to school, your teachers would get a slap or your teachers, your parents would probably get a slap on the wrist. But I don't think there was a truancy officer hunting you down trying to take you
0: to school by any means, shape or form. I don't think so. And I think too, I mean, I obviously don't know this for sure, but Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure your records are based on you being registered at the school. So exactly. If she was ever even registered somewhere? They wouldn't have any idea that she wasn't in school because they had no yeah. record of her. Essentially,
1: exactly. And I mean, she left when she was sixteen. I don't think she had any contact with the Gillings. So, I think it would be really hard to kind of hunt her down. And it was in the early nineties. Yeah. Cell phones were barely a thing.
0: No Facebook.
1: No Facebook. No no uh, tracking on iPhones or anything. You were just able to wander freely. And that's kind of what happened, right? Yeah. So she didn't have an education based on information I saw online. And she also didn't really have a lot of work experience. It's not as if she was a waitress or she was a nurse's aide or anything to that nature. She was just surviving. And unfortunately, you can't put that on a resume. I mean, if we if we could, I would have that from the get-go since January twelfth of nineteen (laughs) ninety-four. I have been surviving (laughs) this life. This thing we call life. (laughs) So I'm not certain as to when she would start this, but Helen would begin engaging in sex work as a form of income. And I've said this on my show, and I'm sure you've probably said on yours as well. And I think you actually have. But sex work is work, and I don't want to hear judgment from anyone about that sex work is work full stop end of discussion the end (laughs) the end so she's engaging in sex work she's trying to bring income into the the apartment for not only herself
0: but for her daughter for jerry they're trying to be a family right i think not to get off on a tangent but i think it's interesting how a lot of people don't realize or don't want to think about the fact that sex work wouldn't exist if somebody wasn't willing to pay for it full stop so (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i mean maybe that's the problem not the people doing the sex work to survive (laughs) it's probably the people paying for it Mm
1: -hmm, which are usually the people that exploit the sex workers uh steal from them murder them
0: rape them i mean yep I've never read a case of that, <laughs> and never, never yeah. even heard of one. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, so you may get to this, or you may not have information on it. Mm-hmm. Was he doing anything? I didn't. I don't remember seeing anything. He might have maybe being her pimp. It could, yeah. I, I obviously it, don't want to assume, but I, I yeah, that a lot in cases. I don't, oh, uh, I see. And it's been a while since I've looked
1: at these notes. So I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. There's a part, there's a little part of my little heart that hopes that he was trying to work himself and just wasn't putting it all on Helen, but I don't know him personally. I can't speak to that nature. Information yeah. was very slim, especially and, on him too.
0: And I think it is unfortunately the reality that a lot of times if, the f- woman is engaged in sex work. The man is kind of relying on her to do it all. Yeah. Which is really shitty, but it, it happens. happens.
1: Yeah. Well, and depending on clientele and everything, not to completely go off tangent, but you can make a lot of money in mm-hmm. sex work, right? Hello, only fans. <laughs> you can make a lot of money. So it could have been the situation where Jerry maybe didn't feel he needed to, or maybe. He stayed back and watched their daughter and was also working. Yeah. 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 Can't confirm fully, but there's some potential options out there that we just discussed, right? So it sounds Jerry and Helen tried their best to stay afloat, but unfortunately their boat began to sink. Jerry, Helen, and their daughter would be evicted from their apartment building due to being behind on rent. If this wasn't bad enough, Jerry and Helen's daughter would, was reportedly apprehended by the Children's Aid Society around this time. So, not only are they dealing with being evicted, Children's Aid comes and gets involved and apprehends their daughter. It's like you're kicking somebody when they're already down. You know what I mean, and, and I understand from a community service point of view, because that's what I that's what I work in, that you want to protect the child from any potential safety concerns but then from somebody speaking from somebody who knows what happens in this case, it's also just unfortunate just how the the story
0: is panning out. If that makes sense. It's oh come on, really right now? Yeah. And I mean, obviously you probably don't have this information and you Mm -hmm. haven't said anything about it so far, but if there wasn't reports of her being abused or starving or neglected, it's she's just doing this survival sex work to get by. And if she's able to provide for her child, and I don't see what the problem is. If, yep, I think it's a different story if you're kind of using your child. Oh, yeah. I'm part of that. That's oh. obviously a different case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're just trying to get by to actually provide for your child, why are we penalizing that?
1: Yep. Exactly. Things also... It's just a bad, it's just, it's it's a really bad time. So on top of all of this, Helen was also reportedly six months pregnant at this time with the couple's second child. So this is just adding more stress on a very stressful situation. Helen would actually give birth to the couple's second daughter on January 26th of 1995. The newest addition to the family was born prematurely and would have to remain in the St. Saint Joseph's, Saint Joseph's Hospital for up to three weeks. So at, a week after giving birth, Helen was out of the hospital. I believe she was living rough again. I think her, Jerry, and maybe the newborn, I'll probably get to it, but they were they were living rough. It was now the middle of winter and being in Ontario, I can imagine that she and everybody else was freezing their butts off. Because winter in Ontario, it's not fun. It's, it's pretty freaking cold. There have been eyewitness accounts of someone seeing Helen standing within an apartment building's lobby to probably try and get warm. Supposedly, this eyewitness watched as a man from this apartment building, from this apartment building, physically threw Helen out of the building with force. So Helen's living rough. Jerry's living rough. They're all living rough. But Helen individually, I guess, was trying to get warm. She was in an uh, apartment lobby just trying to get warm it's winter time and i'm assuming the building manager or property manager watches her sees her and physically gets her out of the building the claim further states that the eyewitness saw helen land on her face and this unknown man walked around helen as if she wasn't even there so that object objectification fully she's not she's not even a person she's just an annoyance in his lobby and he just threw her to the curb and walked away as if it was
0: just your average Tuesday what are your thoughts on that unfortunately it's not surprising I think part of that objectification that we've been talking about when you realize not you and I but the mm-hmm. proverbial you, when you realize that you can get away with that, it almost emboldens you to do more and more of that. And obviously, if you were pushing a white woman or even just out on the street where somebody could actually see you, just yeah. physically shove a woman, most people are going to be, What are you doing?
2: Mm hmm.
0: Think, yeah. Know, like- yeah. There's still that kind of, oh, somebody like that bystander effect, somebody else is going to call the police, somebody else yep. is going to help her. Yeah, exactly. And, so and yeah, it just plays into that emboldenedness that somebody has. It's They all think they're calling on each other's calling on the on the police and nobody is. So I'm just going to keep on my merry way. Exactly. And apparently there was a call placed to
1: police regarding this incident at the apartment building. However, I can't comment as to whether anything came out of it or not since I couldn't find it online. And I will say I, I can understand that you don't want people loitering in your building. You don't want people just staying there when they don't live there. But there are a billion different ways that person could have handled that situation with Helen. And that was probably the, the worst way. And the the way that he did just kind of reinforces that people, people just need more empathy. She's cold. It's wintertime, ma'am. Just chill. Let her warm up for a bit and then maybe offer her a cab to a shelter or
0: something. You don't need to be physical. I was going to say, at the very least, obviously she wasn't doing anything to anybody, but mm-hmm. like at the very least, if you're so butthurt about it, why not just go up to her and say, hey, you don't. You don't live here. I'm going to need you to leave the premises or whatever. But to put your hands on somebody is not okay.
1: Exactly. So the next time Helen was reportedly seen alive was on Thursday, February 16th of 1995. So according to the True Crime Real Time Podcast blog, Helen headed out on February 15th to a local bar called The Straw Hat, which was located at 457 King Street East in Hamilton. The Straw Hat eventually would be called Sheila's Place, which according to Google is temporarily closed down. I'm not sure if it's because of the
0: pandemic. The name isn't as fun as The Straw Hat, so maybe that's part of the problem.
1: That could be honest. <laughs> between 1 a.m and 1 30 a.m on thursday february 16, 1985 eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the then 19 year old helen enter a nearby alley with a male this guy had been reportedly playing pool with helen before the two had vacated the bar together further accounts have provided more details of the man helen was with this unnamed man has been described as potentially being between 20 to 25 years old standing at 5 10 with a slender build, weighing approximately 140 pounds, which I'm always how how much someone weighs. <laughs> I've I bluntly asked my partner, "How much do you think I weigh?" Knowing how much I weigh, and he will be, "Oh, 120 pounds, buddy. I haven't weighed that in years." Thank you, but no. So it, it's always weird to me when I see, oh, this person weighed this much. How do,
0: you, how do you? right? I feel like in some cases you can obviously be, okay, they weigh more than a hundred pounds. Oh, yeah. But I'm not going to be able to look at most people off the street and be, mm, that person is definitely 125 <laughs> pounds for oh, sure. A-, a thousand percent. And <laughs>
1: so, so this unnamed man uh, apparently had light colored eyes, possibly blue. Not really sure. And a, and a protruding chin, which I don't know if that's necessary to comment on, but it's a detail we now know, and it's maybe good to have. His chin protruding. <laughs> right. <laughs> Furthermore, the really had crooked back teeth, which how do people know? Anyways, and overemphasized his S's and his speech, so he had some kind of speech impediment of some sort, uh, not impediment, but some kind of speech thing going on. I, I can't think of I don't want to say it's a disorder, almost an abnormality,
0: but not Yes.: that. Yes, that's, that's not bad. necessarily meaning a bad abnormality. It's just yeah like you and I don't. Do that. So it's not it's different than what most people
1: have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm sure when Helen left the Straw Hat, she didn't think that the man she was with would be the last person she would maybe see alive. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. It's not really clear. What is clear is that Helen wouldn't allegedly be seen again until around 5 p.m. on February 17th. Her lifeless, uncovered body was discovered was discovered by a local man who lived in a nearby apartment. Helen was still where she had been last reportedly seen, aka nearby the Straw Hat Club. And direct quote from the Hamilton Spectator article by Susan Claremont to elaborate further, quote, She was naked and stuffed beneath an overturned couch in the dark and dirty alley behind King Street East apartment building, a short walk from the bar. She had been strangled. End quote. Now, Helen's death had been ruled a homicide. Based on what I could see online, it's unclear as to whether Helen had been sexually assaulted during her attack. However, some have speculated that given she was found nude, perhaps she was. I did not see any confirming medical assessment being done or being released. Sexual assault was not formally listed on the any kind of release of information, But it wasn't also fully ruled out. So it's kind of what we do know is that it's potential she could have been sexually assaulted, but we don't know for fact if that makes sense.
0: Right. So it sounds the only thing you kind of know for sure or we kind of know for sure is that she was strangled.
1: Yes. And that
0: she was found
1: not wearing her clothes in an alleyway. Near the straw
0: hat bar, so the same alleyway that she was last seen alive. Yes, yeah,
1: exactly. And she was found just by somebody that lived in the nearby apartment building. They, they were just walking and noticed her. And that's also got to be really traumatizing on that person to end that area. Right at that point, it's okay. What's who's who's going to be next? And as far as my understanding, there was never any concern of a serial killer. It kind of seems as if this was a very isolated incident. I could be wrong, but based on what I did see in particular to Helen's case, it was never or has not yet been connected to any other murders in Hamilton, Ontario or anywhere else. So it was almost just specifically
0: targeted at her.
1: Yes, exactly. Nonetheless, the light of life Helen brought into this world had been stolen. Helen's boyfriend, Jerry, would be called to the local morgue in order to identify Helen. A task that no one would want to ever experience, and for those that do have to do it, it's something that pro- that they probably would never wish upon their worst enemy to have to do. I, so far, have not ever have had to do that, and I dread the day I might have to and i think for jerry it was really hard because as far as my understanding they were still in a relationship they they were new parents right this this situation couldn't be any more shitty for him
0: right and like he'd just daughter. gone through all of this eviction and having mm-hmm. his, do- his first daughter taken away and then they have their second daughter and now his girlfriend's dead exactly
1: reports have claimed that jerry made the following statement following identifying helen at the morgue which depicts the intensity of the situation quote have you ever had to go in and look at someone you love lying on a cold slab covered in a plastic bag do you have any idea what that feels end quote he also reported he also reportedly was quoted to say the following regarding helen she was a good person and she was a good mother She's never done anything wrong in this world. I miss her a lot. End quote. Whew. So yeah, it's it's heavy. It's a lot. And just to take kind of a step back, I don't know. It wasn't identified that she was murdered specifically because she was indigenous, but part of me wonders had she had been any other culture, race, or ethnicity, if this would be if we'd be even talking about her today,
0: right? Yeah. It's. I mean, it's a sad reality, I think, that we obviously have to talk about. Exactly. To
1: Jerry and those that loved Helen, the heartbreaking rollercoaster wasn't over, though. As many may recall, Helen and Jerry's youngest daughter was at St. Joseph's Hospital due to being born prematurely. And so backtracking a bit, I mentioned that Helen had left the hospital three days or sorry, three weeks after their youngest was born. But the youngest was still at the hospital when Helen left. So Helen was able to leave, but her daughter wasn't. So technically, her daughter was actually still at the hospital when her mother was murdered. Once Helen's murder kind of made public news, the newborn baby was apprehended by Children's Aid Society. Both girls would be reportedly adopted Eventually. Now, I don't know if they were adopted together. I unfortunately can't speak to any updates regarding the two girls or to even Jerry, as I was unable to find anything online. And there is a part of me that wants to respect that because, kind of, kind of to what we talked about before. I mean, yes, we're talking about this case. Yes, speaking bluntly, I don't have permission by anyone that Helen is related to to talk about this case. I'm just doing it as my own personal. I want to breathe life into this case because I stumbled upon it. I thought, holy shit, I've never heard about this case before. How many other people also haven't heard about this case? But I also don't want folks to go searching for these girls. I don't want folks to go searching for Jerry. I respect people's privacy in that sense. If they tune in, if they listen and they want to reach out, great. But I'm just hoping that this Maybe bring some closure and talking about it for Helen and for them in the long scheme of things, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of podcasts that I listen to that often change the names of children of the victims just because you said this is yes, it involved their mother or their father or whatever, but it didn't personally involve them, and Mm -hmm. so there's no reason for them to be named. I am, I mean. I kind of feel I already know the answer, but it is a little bit frustrating that they would take the kids away Mm -hmm. from Jerry. Yeah. Because, I mean, being poor shouldn't be a crime. I know we treat it like it is, but that shouldn't be a reason that you get your kids taken away from you.
1: Yeah. And I, I fully agree. And I don't know. I made this comment for, I don't know, Jerry, but it just... I don't know. It would be, it would be nice to kind of have that information to say, okay, it makes sense as to why Children's Aid got involved, because as of, as it stands right now, it's it, to me personally, my perspective is Children's Aid is getting involved because we have an Indigenous mother who is working in sex work, who has now been murdered. There's a history of homelessness, and yeah, so we're just gonna take the kids instead of. Offering these people
0: supports instead of helping them get on their feet, right? yeah, and I mean, obviously, this information wasn't out there, but I feel if there was a history of harm to their kids, that I'm very cynical, and <laughs> I know that the the media loves to report criminal histories exactly. So I feel if there was a history of violence against the children or neglect or something that you would know. We would And know. so again, if there, I mean, I understand if maybe we need to get Jerry some help for a substance abuse problem or something, or maybe we need to set him up with the tools he needs to get a job or whatever it is, but simply taking away your kids doesn't really give you a lot of incentive to, to do it. Yeah, to do anything. It almost makes things worse in some respects.
1: Exactly. And speaking of family, going to circle back to Helen's adoptive parents being Bert and Wendy Gillings. So referring to the Hamilton Spectator again. Reports claim that Helen's adoptive family didn't come to Hamilton for Helen's funeral. So apparently their claim as to not why they didn't come was because they couldn't afford airfare from Alberta to Ontario. And I know there's going to be people out there that think, what the fuck? <laughs> because when I read it, I was, what the fuck? I don't know. I want to give Bert and Wendy the benefit of the doubt in the sense that I don't know what their financial situation is was I don't know what it is I I don't know if they if they were a family of means if they were struggling or what have you I will say as somebody that has traveled from one province to another as somebody that does does have a salary job it's fucking expensive it is very expensive and I'm so torn because I say that but in the same sense I'm if I was in that position You, I would have walked, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's just, it's one of those teetering situations where it's, I get it, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. What what do you think?
0: I think my biggest wanting to give them the benefit of the doubt is she ran away when she was 16. Yeah. 14,
1: Uh, uh, 16, 16.
0: And, oh, well,
1: sorry, technically 12, but she went to, She came back to Ontario by 16. Sorry for interrupting, but yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. (laughs) So
0: again, the lack of information. Yeah. If she wasn't (laughs) in contact with them very frequently or very regularly, I could see almost this kind of detachment on their end. Yeah. And I know that that's really shitty to say, but at the same time, if that was the case, I kind of see how, you wouldn't necessarily try as hard to go to her funeral. Exactly. Again, I still wouldn't yeah. do that. I would yeah I I would do whatever to raise the funds, but that's my yeah. own personal thing. Yep. <clears throat> but I guess I don't put too much into it just because of that yeah. kind of disconnect, not really knowing how much They kept in contact, it kind of makes a little bit of sense why they wouldn't try as hard, maybe. Exactly, exactly.
1: And I think no matter what, we're all going to grieve differently. We're all going to respond to death differently. And I just hope that folks listening aren't too harsh when it comes to Bert and Wendy. Once again, we don't, I don't know their financial situation. I don't know if they were, I don't know if they owned oil or anything to that nature. I feel if they did, we'd know about it. But despite all of this the couple had shared their hopes that Helen's murder would be eventually solved so in a in another direct quote taken from the Hamilton Spectator article written by Susan Claremont regarding Susan's specific contact with the, with uh, with Bert Gillings quote she was a beautiful girl referencing Helen of course her dad told me back then she Helen was intelligent she loved animals She had artistic talent that would blow you away. What happened to Helen was a waste of what could have been a wonderful life. And for that, I'm very, very sad. Helen was very much loved here. We did everything we could to convince her of that. Helen's spirit was broken, he said. He suspected she had been sexually abused earlier in life, end quote. So I included that bit of a quote and didn't really talk about it earlier Because that was kind of the only instance where someone was there could have been abuse prior to when Helen and her sister Stephanie were adopted. I don't know. It was never I I, I just don't know. It's out there. It's published in one of the one of the articles, the Hamilton Spectator. It could be very well the situation. We just don't know right? So to kind of summarize my case, to this day, being 27 years later, Helen's homicide case still remains unsolved. The case is not considered closed, and supposedly Staff Sergeant Dave Oliniuk of the Homicide Unit has taken over Helen's case as of recent. There has been some progress made, but nothing in grand detail, which as somebody looking into the case as an outsider is kind of frustrating because it's a little like, you want to celebrate these progressions, right? For example, Oli Niuk and the Hamilton police reportedly have identified the man that Helen went into the alleyway with. However, it's not clear as to whether this person is a person of interest, according to a CBC article by Kelly Bennett. Within that same article by Kelly Bennett, Oli Neuk reportedly stated the following quote, directed to whomever is responsible for Helen's murder. So this is the investigator. Making a very public statement in hopes, I think, to maybe scare this person. Quote, somebody, the one responsible, is looking over their shoulder every day. Police want to reinforce to that person that, yeah, maybe you should be looking over your shoulder. You are not safe. We will not stop. End quote. Since Helen's murder, there have been multiple community-based events and fundraisers in honor of her. This includes candlelight vigils and a successful lobby to have a light added to the alleyway where Helen was last seen, dubbed Helen's Light. Community-based funding has even been raised to have a proper headstone at the Woodland Cemetery in Burlington, located near Hamilton. I did try and find Helen's gravestone on the Find a Grave website, however, was unsuccessful. As well, in her honor, there was the creation of the Helen Gillings Society. This group, in honor of Helen, would reportedly distribute food, blankets, and clothing to sex workers in the Hamilton area. I'm unsure if this group is still functioning in 2022. So if anyone's listening from the Hamilton area knows of whether or not this is still kind of going on, please let me know so I can provide that information, kind of boost their online presence. I would love to do that. I tried looking via Google and Facebook. However, obviously it was very unsuccessful. Anyone with information is encouraged to contact the Major Crime Unit at 905-546-3801 or crime stoppers at 905-522 tips which is 8477 there is a $10,000 reward for information leading to a conviction so if something for the love of god say something please it just it baffles me that sometimes people just won't say anything because they don't think they have impo- quote unquote important information because you never know what your information may do or what kind of closure it may bring. And that is the unsolved murder of Helen Gillings. What are your final thoughts, Elise?
0: I know I just kind of like threw that all at you. <laughs> no, just thinking about a whole person's life has gone by since this case happened. Yep. It's just astounding to me. And obviously, I don't know this for sure, but I think in today's society where we have so many more cameras everywhere, so much more social media presence, those cases that happened in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, they get so difficult to solve without DNA or something physical that, that you can test Yeah, because we just don't have these other options for people. Right. And I obviously don't know the area, but it kind of sounds, it was a area where people tend to mind their own business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To and extent. Yeah. And I, I think with the evolution of podcasting and content creators and everything, cases are so much more amplified and you do have those quote unquote armchair detectives internet sleuths or whatever that will put in so much work and effort to try and solve these cases i don't necessarily know if that was as big of a thing back then once again born in 94 no idea of the world around me at the time so i'm just speaking as somebody who is present and fully aware of the content now being offered i don't know honestly there are so many cases helen's and I would love nothing more than some form of closure or some kind of update, just for those. Kellen's sister for crying out loud, twenty-seven years without your sister, her stepbrother. Twenty-seven years without a loved one. I I have one older half brother that I'm very close with. I couldn't imagine twenty-seven years of my life without him.
0: Without right? him, and then without knowing who did this to him
1: and what no. happened, and what led yeah. to what led to it. Right? Was it? Did Helen die because she was Indigenous? Did she die because she was a woman? Did she die because she was engaging in sex work? Was it because somebody snapped? Did it have nothing to do with Helen? But Helen, unfortunately, was one of those unfortunate people at an unfortunate situation, right? And until we actually planned for this crossover, I had never heard of this case. And Hamilton's only over two hours from where I live now. I went to college in Hamilton. I did a social, social science-based program in Hamilton. Never heard of her name before. Which is just, I'm getting chills just talking about like that. Because it's, holy shit, But the hell? There, yes, there are so many people in on this planet. And we're not going to know every single human being. We're not going to be able to know their story, know this, know that. But I think with technology and everything out there we can at least give more highlight to those that weren't able to live their life to the fullest right so it's it's a very yeah it's a very I wasn't kidding when I saw this was going to be a heavy case It's definitely put me in my feels. It's definitely sat with me for a while. And I think it's going to be one of those cases that will sit with me for a while. I might not think of it every day. Don't get me wrong. I, I ingest so much that sometimes I don't even think of myself and when I need to eat. But I, it, it crosses my mind every so often. It's holy shit. Helen was just a little bit younger than me surviving in a city that I, I have been to. And her life was taken for for what? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So you have some cases you want to talk about. So in other <laughs> words, hopefully those listening are holding on tight. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can imagine it's going to get uh, even more, more of a harsh reality. Let's put it that way. Yes.
0: Well, at least in my cases, there is room for shit talking for certain people and yay. so I love just that yay because <laughs> that's one right that is one thing that i do that i may always do is when there's room to talk shit about a perpetrator or a serial killer oh yeah i'm gonna talk shit i don't oh. care
2: mm-hmm.
0: what i don't i don't care <laughs> No, I'm never going to say anything bad about the victim. I'm never going to say anything to take anything away from their legacy. But I will absolutely always talk shit about a perpetrator or a serial killer or whatever because they deserve it.
1: (laughs) Well, especially when they deserve it, right? You hear of cases where the perp lived a really shitty life and you do acknowledge, eh, what? Had it been a different situation, maybe we wouldn't be talking about them. Maybe we wouldn't even mention their name. They'd be an average person. I say that as if people are average, but we as a species definitely not average. But then there are those assholes that exist that just take the lives of others for no fucking reason. For no reason other than they just do. And those are the assholes I like to shit talk. So
0: (laughs) I'm with you. For sure. So the first case I'm going to talk about is Caitlin Potts. And Caitlin was a 27-year-old who was described as outgoing and bubbly and she had a thriving social life and can't relate, but <laughs>
1: immediately <laughs> cannot relate. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her.
0: Yes. So she was super close to her family and she grew up in Alberta. Her family was a member of the, were members of the Samson Cree First Nation. And she had three siblings. It wasn't really clear uh, from the articles I read why Caitlin and her siblings ended up in foster care, but they eventually did. And I think that's something we touched on earlier that with these indigenous women cases, there's so much generational trauma from parents and grandparents growing up in those residential schools. You touched on this a little bit in Helen's case. There's actually a lot of physical and sexual abuse that happens as well, both while they're with family members, but also in the foster care system itself as well when they go to foster families. Yeah. So it's not just, I think there's a tendency to kind of blame the Indigenous people over this. Yeah. But absolutely not. It was happening in the foster care system as well. And, excuse me. And so a lot of the parents and grandparents of these children that end up in foster care, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of alcoholism as well and substance abuse. And so all of this is just, I mean, it's what we talked about in Helen's case. There's all these things that are going to be quote unquote red flags for CPS, child protective services to kind of get involved and try to take the kids and all that. So
1: yeah,
0: Caitlin was in the foster care system until she was 11. And basically her mom kind of spent the time that her kids were in the foster care system trying to get her kids back, just really work on herself to be able to get the kids back. So she did spend as much time as possible visiting all of her kids. It sounds they had pretty regular visits. She would take them to the lake. They would have family dinners together. I think she tried to be there as much as she was allowed to be, but it's not the same as your mom being around 24-7. Exactly. You
1: know, yeah. All of it's, that. And yeah, not that same interact, consistent, constant interaction, which, as we know from previous cases, can be really detrimental to someone's well-being and who they are as a person, who they become as a person, as an adult you're inside my brain Alex I'm sorry
0: (laughs) no because I was literally just about to say that her mom said because of the time she spent in foster care she developed attachment issues oh yeah because she wasn't spending time with her mom the way she used to right and so her mom said she was trying really hard to work through the issues, but at the same time I was reading an American Bar Association article that kind of talked about kids that develop these kind of attachment issues. They never really develop that significant attachment relationship to an adult, and so they usually don't have the kind of emotional and mental mental foundation that sets them up for success later in life. So you were talking about earlier, all of that history in the foster care system this attachment issues that she's having this is playing a direct role into shaping who she's going to be who she is now right Right. all of that and so it's super important to kind of note that but it's also just important to kind of highlight more generally for people that spending time with your kids is super important telling them you love them super important all of that important because it's not just about giving them that love in that second. It's also about in the future, you want to set them up for healthy relationships and you want to set them up to be the best they can be and not at all trying to blame Caitlin's mom, the situation, not at all. I just want to point out that this is what can happen yeah. when those things are challenged or taken away from them. So in the years leading up to her disappearance, Caitlin was involved in an on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Jason Hanatic. I don't really care if I'm saying that correctly. Hanatic, whatever. So they were in this kind of turbulent, definitely abusive relationship. So in 2014, when the couple was living in Edmonton, Alberta, the police report says that Jason assaulted Caitlin with some kind of weapon- didn't say what, at the Forum Hotel in Edmonton. Jason would later go to trial on the assault charge, and he was found guilty of assault with a weapon and breaching a condition of recognizance, and then two other unknown charges were dropped. What's interesting is this whole trial that happened didn't happen until May 2017, which is after Kaylin went missing. What? What? Yeah. (laughs)
1: That, okay. I know, I know the whole Canadian law system is slower than molasses. It's very stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. It's as someone that worked briefly in the mental health justice system, community justice system, I should add. I get it, but that doesn't make any sense (laughs) that I don't get
0: (laughs) at all. I truly don't either. And I think it was just the delays and just all of that compounded and, and just, I mean, There's also the fact that in 2015, Jason moved to Enderby, British Columbia, and a few months later, Caitlin followed right behind him. So Jason was arrested at some point. I'm not really sure what for. So Caitlin went to stay at a women's shelter in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. This probably was one of the best things that could have happened to her because she was back in school. She got a job at Tim Hortons. Then, of course, she got back together with Jason. Just that typical on again, off again that we see so much. Yeah. And I, I will say they did get back together, but Caitlin was living with a roommate that she w- met at the women's shelter instead of Jason.
1: Good, so at
0: least okay. there was that.
1: Yeah, and the relationship sounds toxic, for lack of a better term. And in those relationships, what we know from previous cases and from ed- education, what have you, those are the hardest to leave. Toxic, abusive relationships are the hardest to leave for a plethora of different reasons. And so I don't I don't judge her for not leaving because I get it. Hell, it, it, it you want to hope that the person will change
0: all the time. You do, and then I think there's also this layer of the possibility that she might not have known how toxic and abusive this was.
1: Yep,
0: Like because of yeah, her, just yeah. all the issues that she had had growing up. Yeah, I think there's that cloud also on top of it, and so it's it's you said you you want to keep hoping the best. I mean, I think deep down, everybody really oh. hopes that they're still good in everyone out there
1: yeah they you know. hope the person that they love is not a piece of shit like exactly i think, I think that's kind of a common <laughs> mentality we all have i don't think we wake up in the morning and be like oh wow i really hope that the person i love so much is going to be a piece of shit no no one <laughs> and if you do i have questions at <laughs> least <take> help <laughs> yeah please get therapy <laughs> but in her in her specific situation i
0: get it yeah i get it makes sense <laughs> So that brings us to February of 2016, specifically the 21st, when Caitlin Potts was last seen. So there's surveillance footage from that day showing Caitlin entering either the Orchard Park Mall or specifically the Hudson's Bay store in, is it Kulana? Is that how you say it? I'm going to say Kulana.
1: I'm (laughs) going to be upfront and honest. I've never been to BC. I'm not going to pretend I know BC very well. So I think you're saying it wonderfully. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if anyone has clarifications,
0: uh, let us know. Yes, please <laughs> let me know. So she was seen around one thirty, And in the video, she was alone. And nothing really appeared to be out of the ordinary. She was wearing a three-quarter length black jacket with a hood. She had light-colored pants. And then she had brown or black winter boots you couldn't quite tell from the surveillance they were dark they kind of looked like uggs so you can see her carrying a white cell phone and then a light le- a light brown leather handbag or purse it's not quite clear how big it was but it was definitely some kind of handbag or purse so her last official whereabouts is unknown but the 21st was not the last time that her family heard from her oh okay yeah Super weird. So on the morning of February 22nd, Caitlin sent a Facebook message to her sister Cody. Cody was still living in Edmonton at the time, which is about nine and a half hours away from where she was in BC. Right, which is pretty far. I mean, it's not. It's far, far. It's but it's,
1: yeah. And it, I always find this interesting.
0: So in the states, you could
1: literally drive an hour and be in a different state. No problem. Which every state has its own little spice of I don't know. It's its own living situation. Anyways, in Canada, if you drive an hour anywhere, you're still in the same province. <laughs> Our provinces are so big in comparison, right? So nine hours to drive from one province to another is is a it's still a lot. That's still a good chunk of time to drive, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, so you were talking about before Helen moving from this province over here, then moving two provinces over. Over,
1: yeah. And, and he's not walking. <laughs> yeah, and every every province and every state, I think what I was trying to say earlier is has its own different flavor of a world behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said before, Alberta, to us people that live in Ontario, is kind of a yeehaw state because they have the Calgary Stampede. They have the oil pipeline stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't live there. <laughs> and Ontario is known as this snobby, city based province because we have Toronto and Ottawa, right? So I get it, right? It's it's different everywhere you go. It's kind of the states. So it's still a hike, right? I mean, if I drive nine hours south of Ontario, I've already hit two states and a province.
0: Right. And I think the the biggest thing is that you're not if something's happened to your sister, or your sister needs help, you're not gonna be able to be there oh, right no. away. She oh, doesn't no. live around the corner from
1: you. Oh. No, and yeah, if you're not with authorities, police, anything like that, it's not like you have sirens. You're still gonna have to wait in traffic, right? So a nine-hour commute could be more unless you have some backup.
0: Yeah. So she gets this text, and so Caitlyn tell or this Facebook message, and Caitlin tells Cody that she had texted Jason while she was upset. She meeting Caitlin, because Jason owed her money. So for whatever reason. Caitlin then told her sister, Cody, that she was going to go to Calgary, but she didn't say why or for how long. All she told Cody was that she'd found a ride on Kijiji, which kind of sounds Canadian Craigslist. It is. It okay. very sure is. Yes. And yes, it is very sketchy. Okay. That's what I pictured in my mind, and I'm glad you confirmed that. <laughs> so the last thing that was included in Caitlin's Facebook message to her sister was that she'd quote, "Be coming back that evening for sure." End quote "Now, I'm not super familiar with Canada. So I used Google Maps. Nice. nice. <laughs> I do that too, don't worry. You're very technical. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. So using Google Maps, it's about five and a half hours one way from Enderby, British Columbia, to Calgary, Alberta. So a round trip without doing. Anything in Calgary would be 11 hours. That's just driving, yep. not doing no. anything.
1: No stops, nothing. That is straight balls to the wall. You are in your cart and you're not
0: stopping. Yeah, that's you driving there, stopping, turning around and coming back. Yeah. So, depending on when she left, there wouldn't be a lot of time for her to do whatever she planned to do in Calgary if she was also supposed to be back that night. Yeah, doesn't
1: really make sense.
0: Super weird to me. I mean, obviously not unfeasible or unheard of, but just really weird because it's such a long distance. It's not she's going an hour away
1: and then coming back. Yeah, exactly.
0: She sends this message to her sister, Cody. She sent a similar message to her roommate about finding... A ride to Calgary on Kijiji. But after those Facebook messages, Caitlin's family and her roommate never heard from Caitlin again.
1: You might get to it, but to me, a red flag is coming up because it sounds somebody else is on her Facebook sending these messages to try to eliminate any suspicion.
0: And that's definitely the vibe I got. Yep. Okay. Again, I think that maybe that plays into this kind of weird time constraint too because if you're just trying to cover your tracks and not necessarily thinking about the lo- the logical pieces of it the logistics you aren't gonna stop and think okay wait this doesn't actually make sense because it's this long to drive from here to there there's no way I could be back tonight unless we're talking about the wee hours of the morning or something
1: yeah and you're driving a car that
0: goes very very fast yeah and Without. apparently gets good gas mileage because you're not stopping. yeah
1: exactly <laughs> and you're also hoping that there's no police out to try and pull you there's just no traffic so many, yeah yeah so many no deer nothing to hit because especially the more west you get i i drove once in saskatchewan and i swear to god within the first two hours i saw so many deer just Running across the highway—it's oh my god! <laughs> it's it—it's very scary. It's very scary as a driver. So it just it's it—it's not making sense to me.
0: Yeah, obviously we hear so often. It was extremely out of character for Caitlin to be out of touch with her family, and so they filed a missing persons report, uh Caitlin's mom specifically, with the Vernon North Okanagan RCMP on March first of 2016. So this is already a week or so
2: mm.
0: after she yep. went missing and then 20 days after caitlin's mom went to the rcmp so we're now a month after she's been seen the rcmp sent out an official alert on their website about caitlin's disappearance
1: a full-ass month after why what's the fucking hold up was their internet broken was <laughs> Did a deer run into the electricity pole or something and then they it took them a month to get
0: their internet. What I what couldn't find anything and there was nothing noted about any kind of investigation or anything going on in those 20 days between when her mom comes and reports her missing and then they finally send something out on their website or whatever.
1: I'm going to go out on a limb here because she wasn't because yeah she because she wasn't a white female with blonde hair and blue eyes she more than likely wasn't top priority. Correct. Yeah, which is unfortunately the scenario for a lot of missing murder indigenous cases and for other other folks black women a a folks
0: mm-hmm. even men of color as Yeah. As well, uh, yeah, I don't think it's talked about as often either that because I think a lot of times we think oh men can stand up for themselves and all of that but But it's still still we should still cover those cases because they're not getting the coverage they need so we kind of deduced just because those Facebook messages say she planned to go to Calgary the RCMP don't think she actually ever left the Okanagan area there were allegedly sightings of her in Calgary but nothing was substantiated. I mean, I think we often see people just trying to think that they're quote-unquote being helpful. Oh, I saw so-and-so at the... Yeah. Yeah. But without substantiation, I'm not going to believe that. So the RCMP media relations officer has publicly stated that they believe Caitlin was likely murdered and Most people believe that whoever murdered her sent those Facebook messages to her sister and to her roommate to kind of cover their tracks. So in June of 2016, this is a couple months after the missing persons report, several indigenous groups led their own searches at the request of Caitlin's mother, Priscilla. They searched areas of Enderby, Mabel Lake, Grindrod, Grindrod? Grindrod and along the Shoe Swap River. Unfortunately, they didn't find Caitlin, nor did they find any evidence related to her disappearance and murder. When the RCMP released the surveillance footage of Caitlin to the public in April 2017, they also publicly reclassified her case to suspected foul play. And according to the RCMP, the case is still active as of 2017. That was kind of the last big update that I could find, but her disappearance and likely murder remains unsolved. Okay. So what about Caitlin's boyfriend, Jason?
1: What about Jason? <laughs> Tell me about Jason.
0: Well you better get out your real sad violin because it's oh. about to get real sad for Jason. Really? Okay. He mm-hmm. claims he's been treated unfairly by investigators oh fuck off oh fuck
1: off i'm sorry
0: i told you to pull out your violin
1: (laughs) i mean it could okay i i don't know if you're able to answer this is jason indigenous
0: do we know that i don't know okay i got the sense not
1: okay because i will say hypothetically if jason is indigenous and another hypothetical if he isn't responsible then i could see him being potentially targeted and just ridiculed and god knows what else by police i i could see that if he's not though if he's not indigenous i have a heart i just i don't know there's something in the pit of my stomach that's saying something's up and it's not in jason's favor but that's just me that's just that's just my two cents and also he can kick rocks. Exactly.
0: And you're not going to like him. In oh, yay. Oh, yay. So. <laughs> so he's been treated unfairly. <laughs> and <laughs> this jerk-off claims he was never actually Caitlin's boyfriend and that she never lived with him, although he did concede that she would occasionally stay with him. Uh, Okay.
1: Hi, <laughs> Jason. Uh thanks for your information. Seems a little uh contradictory to literally everybody else's information, but yeah.
0: Oh okay. don't worry. He has he has a few more tidbits to share.
1: Oh, of course he does.
0: So he couldn't remember the last time he saw or spoke with Caitlin. <clears throat> which okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the dumbest thing he said was he claimed that Caitlin was working as an escort at the time of her disappearance. And as far as I could tell, there's literally no proof of that whatsoever.
1: Wasn't she working at Tim Hortons?
0: Exactly. She was working at Tim Hortons. She was going to school. That's what she was doing.
1: She might be escorting Timbits from behind the counter into the Timbit box buddy, but it doesn't sound to me that she is doing what you think she was doing.
0: Yeah, I I just I can't stand when people want even if a victim was a shitty person and did shitty things. Yeah. They're dead now or they're missing now. And there's no need to throw mud on the situation.
1: Well yeah and to me it just seems the way he's responding It's, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, but she was an escort and she was really sketchy. It's trying to move this judgmental light from him to her. That's what I'm getting. That's the vibe I'm getting from him is I'm not a shitty person, but she, she should be the one you should really consider as the problem here. Okay, Jason, I, mm, cool. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you guys aren't going to be friends anytime soon. Absolutely not. <laughs> so despite all of Jason's nonsense, the RCMP won't say whether or not he's actually a suspect or a person of interest in her disappearance.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, I don't know if that's a specific Canadian thing or not, but it might be. It might just be the way, and I, I see this as somebody who, Obviously doesn't have contact with the RCMP on a regular basis or OPP or whatever. I think they do that just so that they don't tip off the suspect. I mean, homeboy
0: probably knows he's in hot water, right? Yeah, I like. I think for me, if, because it's not always the case, but there's definitely cases that we cover that they'll actually specifically say so-and-so has been cleared. And that, to me, is way more telling than whether or not someone is a suspect or a person of interest.
2: Yeah. Because I think
0: not everybody in the world, but everybody kind of around this person that goes missing or is murdered is a suspect or a person of interest until you Mm -hmm. can't clear them. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that's more important to kind of note is that they haven't actually said, he's ruled out completely. Yep. Yeah,
1: (laughs) And I think because they also haven't said that, there isn't room for doubt that he isn't a suspect yet. There could be, but they're not alluding to it. They're not saying, oh, yeah, we've completely cleared him. Because I feel if they had completely cleared him, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Exactly. Right. Mm. I also found it interesting. Helen was murdered in February. Your girl went missing in February, too. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Please don't tell me the other cases you're covering also go missing in February or murder in February or else. I'm going to suspect <laughs> there's something wrong with the month of February when it comes to these cases.
0: I don't think
1: so. Okay. It could just be a weird coincidence that. Yes. A weird synchronicity for these two. I think it's just these two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's that is weird though. As soon as you said February, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs>
0: She went missing when? <laughs> so the major crime unit is in charge of Caitlin's case. And if you have any information about her disappearance, please contact one 987 8477 The last case I'm going to share today is the disappearance of Angeline Pete. So Angeline was born at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia, on December fifth, nineteen eighty-two, weighing in at six pounds six ounces. She had a head of thick black hair and chubby cheeks, and Aww. I could literally be describing myself, also. So, all <laughs> oh, I can t- relate to. Yep, <laughs> yep. <Yeah, yeah. laughs>
1: Those are the cases that also pull at your heartstrings just a little bit much. It's oh. Oh, too much, too much inpolation.
0: Yeah. And this one's going to be my heavier one, I think. I mean, okay. the last one was not great, obviously, but no. Angeline's mom, Molly, was just 16 years old when she gave birth to Angeline. Right. And Molly's dad, so Angeline's grandpa, was a logger and a fisherman. And Molly's parents, Angeline's grandparents, attended residential schools, and they eventually became alcoholics.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. So
0: Molly grew up in social housing, and she had a really tough home life. So many of the cases we talk about in the the Indigenous community, Molly started hanging out with a rough crowd. She was smoking pot. She was drinking. And there were some reports that she might have used harder drugs as well. She also struggled with her own alcohol addiction as well, even after Angeline was born. And so unfortunately, she did lose custody of Angeline and Angeline got put into foster care. So we talked about with Caitlin's mom, Molly really did try to get Angeline back over the next couple of years, but there were issues with courts and social workers and There was a lot of question about whether or not Molly was actually complying with the conditions she was supposed to in order to regain custody of Angeline. And so just all of these things kind of compounded in delaying the process and just keeping Molly from getting custody back of Angeline. So eventually, Molly's mom, who I'm going to refer to as Grandma Nelson, she got involved eventually, and she had to go through this just super grueling process, but she was able to earn the right to care for Angeline. And so, thankfully, Angeline was taken out of foster care at the age of three. So, just a tiny ray glimmer.
1: A little ray of sunshine and hope. There's always a little ray of hope in these cases. You just I get like just hopeful.
0: I wish that there was more ability to keep them with family rather than put them in the foster care system. Obviously, that's not always possible and it's not always the case, but I just wish that we could talk about that more and have that happen more. Yeah. So, according to Grandma Nelson, Angeline was less affectionate and more withdrawn when she came to live with her. She grew up with her mom and then she was taken away from her for a couple years and then she went to live with her grandma all of this is happening before she's even five and it's just it's a lot of trauma and when you're that young you don't even know what trauma is
1: oh yeah no and let
0: alone how to process it so then of course it gets worse because Angeline told her grandma that her foster parents forced her to eat her own vomit after she threw up during a meal the fuck what? <clears throat> exactly what? why what that that's so cruel and unusual. Why would you make a child why would you, why? exactly. So Grandma Nelson was obviously just heartbroken to hear this, and just yeah, I think I didn't read this anywhere, but I can only imagine she felt guilty for not being able to step in sooner. Right. So it just, I'm glad that Angeline was eventually able to go live with her, but obviously there was still trauma that she had to endure in order to get to that point, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So despite her difficult early childhood, Angeline was able to thrive when it came to playing sports. She loved all sports, but a true Canadian... She truly enjoyed playing hockey. Oh, she loves the pocket.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to. I had to. It came out. I couldn't stop it.
0: <laughs> no, it's so funny. When I read this, I was, oh my gosh, this is peak Canadian right here. This has to be peak Canadian. Peak
1: Canadian. Peak Canadian status. Thousand percent.
0: So she loved playing hockey. Really good at it. Unfortunately, her... Sports skills didn't translate to the academic side of things. Uh, Fair. It wasn't that she wasn't smart or intelligent. It was more that she was disruptive in the classroom. Mm, Okay. I think more of kind of the the social pieces of school not being able to deal with versus the intelligence part, and so she ended up dropping out and she didn't graduate high school. One of Angeline's aunts actually suspected that Angeline had been sexually abused based on some of the things that Angeline would say. But, oh, okay. Angeline never really provided any specific details. But based on the physical and emotional abuse that she kind of described earlier, it unfortunately wouldn't be surprising if that happened. Yeah.
1: And given just this uh, vicious cycle of abuse that, has been passed on generation to generation unfortunately I'm also in that same boat of I wouldn't be surprised which in and of itself is messed up to say
0: but I get it yeah and unfortunately I think that I, I obviously don't know this for sure but her aunts were probably exposed to similar kinds of situations If not amongst themselves and their family, they probably had friends who had similar stories. I think that they could see the signs better than maybe somebody on the outside could. So Angeline had all this trauma that we've talked about and her mother and her grandparents, she started drinking heavily as a teenager. She was in and out of relationships, and she eventually got pregnant by a man named Beryl Stofer. Their relationship was described as rocky, but it was actually Angeline who was the abuser in the relationship.
1: okay, okay,
0: so this was this is one of the reasons I wanted to cover this case is because one, I think a lot of times people don't think that males can be abused. But two, it's inter- It's kind of just an interesting layer on top of everything else that we're discussing. It's obviously not out of the realm of possibility that females can be the abusers in the relationship. But
1: it's also not as talked about as much, right? I mean, in the previous two cases we've talked about, it's the woman that was attacked or abused or neglected in some way, shape, or form. It's interesting to talk about the flip side of things
0: for once, Right. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to think about the trauma that she had and how instead of making her kind of, I mean, she's, she's still a victim of other things, but in this case, she's become more of the aggressor in the abusive context rather than the victim. So in 2004, she went to jail on an assault charge and we're, was released shortly before her son, Daryl Jr., was born. She returned to the Quaxino Reserve after her release, and they found her a place to live with Daryl Jr. that was close to Grandma Nelson and some of her other family members. So at least in my mind, that's a super good deal. Yeah. She's she's with support system. Yeah. She has this baby. Yeah. I don't think I... Ever found out how old she was exactly, but she was either a teenager or early twenties max. She wasn't old she enough was, to really. Yeah, to she was a young mom by herself. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's good that she's surrounded by family and a community that could kind of help her get on her feet and really be potentially the best
0: mom for that child. Right. Right. So I think it was, I think it was her grandma that kind of helped facilitate getting her that place to live with her son so that they would all kind of be together and supporting her. Unfortunately, when Daryl was around, th- Daryl Jr. was around three years old, he went to live with his dad. And I didn't really find any explanation as to why the custody shifted, but Angeline never challenged that custody custody arrangement. And so according to her aunt, she just kind of gave up. She. Her her aunt would say, quote, she gave up her house and gave away her stuff and walked away. She just felt overwhelmed. There was nowhere to turn and nobody to help her. She said there was no use having a home if she didn't have a son, end quote.
1: I'm wondering if she's going through postpartum or even just another kind of depression of sorts. It's very much that I don't care anymore. What's the point? That kind of response that you that response or that kind of thinking pattern that you do see in someone that is struggling with depression or at least with a negative thinking pattern that is not easily being challenged
0: internally. Right. Right. And I think, too, it would be a lot more clear if we knew a little bit more information about why he went to live with his dad. But obviously, we don't have that information. Yeah. That's- and so, but I think you said, regardless of kind of what the why, it makes sense that if you have now had your son taken away from you, okay, I mean, what is the point of having this yeah. house if he's not here, all these things? Mm-hmm. So she gives all that up, and her son moved to Alert Bay with his dad and grandma nelson remained on the reserve which is near port hardy but angeline ended up moving to, Cal- to california to <laughs> vancouver
1: plot <laughs> twist <laughs> she said fuck canada i'm going uh, to california oh and by god i mean i've also been there mentally too i've <laughs> i've thought about yeah. it i'm not oh, lie. I, but yeah apologies I get it. <laughs> it's okay it's okay we, we needed needed that laugh break <laughs> Exactly.
0: (laughs) So she moves to Vancouver. And part of this was because there was a court order that prevented her from coming onto the reserve. And so now that I'm talking about this, it's possible that maybe there was some kind of altercation, not necessarily with her son, but near her son or her son was there, uh, or something, and which is
1: considered a form of abuse, right? Allowing a child to be in an area, or say a home where there is family violence happening, is considered. I know because I actually was just reading in this today for another case I'm covering after this one comes out, based on the Canadian Red Cross, witnessing family violence is a form of child abuse. So
0: that that could be, that could be it. I think that just makes sense too. What yeah. you see it so often. Out. Yeah. It So I definitely think that that possibly played a role in why she no longer had her son. Obviously, she's not allowed to stay on the reserve. She goes to Vancouver. And in December 2010, she was convicted on three counts of assault. These related back to A June 2009 incident that occurred on the reserve, what started off as taunting between Angeline and another woman, quickly escalated into an alcohol-fueled brawl during which Angeline punched the woman in the head.
1: Oh, Angeline. Not Not a good move. Not a good move. Not to be judgmental, but not a good move. And I
0: think, unfortunately, she... Everybody has such a wide spectrum when they drink of how they act and unfortunately I think that alcohol brought out the more aggressive mean violent side of her yeah and so because it's I mean as we kind of go through these things alcohol tends to be involved and so for me that's kind of not trying to blame that on her actions but no but i think when you're inhibited you're inhibited by that and it's bringing out this negative quality in you it's going to cause you to act a certain way and all of that so yeah (laughs) so after she moved to vancouver angeline started dating a man named robert calden who she met online they ended up getting engaged, and they lived together in an apartment in North Vancouver. Calden was a Sotow native, and he was also a senior youth worker for the Squamish Nation. Oh, wow. Okay. So he actually was indigenous. Wow. Cool. Okay. So shortly before her disappearance, Angeline and Calden got into a fight near the North Vancouver terminal for the SeaBus passenger ferry it was a physical enough fight that it drew police attention in the area the couple were was questioned and calden ended up getting arrested so we often see in domestic violence cases angeline declined to make a statement against calden so the charges were stayed but calden ended up sp- spending the night in jail which i think is is still pretty typical. Yeah, just yeah, separate the two for the evening, kind of a thing. Let um, them cool off before they reconnect and kind of touch base with one another. I think that's fair. Exactly. So they are separated at this point, and Angeline was texting one of her friends about the altercation. She told this friend that she was going to quote change, put on some makeup, and head back to downtown Vancouver. End quote. So this unfortunately sounds a prepaid phone because Angeline said that her phone was low on minutes so she couldn't actually call the friend she could only text interesting not super important but just in terms of like being able to track it or something later on obviously burner phones pay-as-you-go phones don't really have that capability So. Around the time that the Angelina and her friend were texting, she also posted a photo of her split lip on Facebook, which was obviously super upsetting to her family and friends who are seeing yeah. this photo. Yeah. And it wasn't quite clear to me. I I don't know that her family, I think her friends may have known, but I don't know that her family knew about any potential abuse with this particular person, her fiance. Because I, they weren't super far away from each other, but they were enough removed that they didn't see her every day. Right. So at the time of the altercation in May of 2011, Angeline was under two conditional sentence orders. And one was related to the assault convictions from 2010 when she was on the reserve and got into that altercation with the woman. And the second was related to a completely different assault of her fiance. So some of the conditions that Angeline had to abide by under this conditional sentence were that she had a 9 p.m. curfew and she was banned from drinking alcohol, which I don't think she was complying with, but well, it's easier said than done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right? Yes. Okay. And I mean, it's, obviously you have to test her, but if she's not getting in a car and driving, if she's not telling you drives around a lot, are you really going to just go out and breathalyze her all the time? It just doesn't seem exactly. it's, a it's, valuable.
1: Yeah. It's one of those conditions that I think needs to be updated in the sense of, you can't drink outside of the home or you can't drink and then leave the house what I mean I I think there needs to be some updating to that because that condition could so you're basically putting the bar so high for somebody especially somebody that has an addiction
0: to that right it's you're setting them up to fail and I think that's the super important key is that when you have an addiction, it isn't as simple as, oh, I'll just not drink and that'll be that. It's after my 9 p.m. curfew. Yep, exactly. No. <laughs> so after this altercation that they had, her fiance is in jail, cooling off. They know where he is, he's doing his thing. The RCMP go to Angeline's apartment around 10:30. And they wanted to make sure that she was abiding by this curfew, so at 10:30 she should be yeah. in her apartment. And they performed what they called five sets of loud knocks to get Angeline's attention, if she was awake or sleeping, whatever. No one answered the door. So a few days later on May 25th, a warrant was issued for Angeline's arrest for breaching the conditions of the orders that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was that knock when they went to go execute or go talk to her. They kind of assumed she wasn't there because they knocked loudly and made their yeah. known or whatever. And she didn't yeah. answer. I, I'm not a super deep sleeper, so I don't know. But I think that some people are probably deep enough sleepers to where they might not wake up, yeah, even if you were true. loudly knocking.
1: Well, yeah, especially if you're on medication or anything, right? Or in
0: a drunk sleep. I don't...
1: Yeah. Think. Sometimes, yeah, I've gone to bed intoxicated and I haven't heard anything after that, right? It's a good sleep sometimes. <laughs> it's a good ass sleep. So I get it. Five loud knocks might not have necessarily
0: woken us up, so... So... Police went to her apartment to execute the warrant. But when they got there, only her fiance was in the apartment. So this is obviously a couple of days after he had been arrested. Right. Then had been let go, okay. he was free to come home. There were really no charges pending because she wasn't going to make a statement. So. Right. He was in the apartment, but he said Angeline was on the phone with him. So one of the officers gone onto the phone and angeline told him she was quote-unquote no longer in the area that's us as hell <laughs> yeah so, And not what
1: you should say to an officer
0: yeah so not great not great and obviously the rcmp encouraged her to turn herself in but no one has heard from angeline since that day so Stop. that's may 25th 2011
1: holy shit and i I say that that not a good response to rcmp that was maybe a little bit of a i don't know a judgment on my end so i apologize if i didn't want to be found maybe that's also something
0: i would say too right or if i was told that's what i needed to say and i think i read somewhere i don't know if i included it in here but it It wasn't snarky or anything. It almost was, oh, I'm not where I can actually come talk to you or turn myself in or whatever it is. I can't do it right at this second kind of a thing. Unfortunately, there wasn't an immediate cause for concern when no one had heard from Angeline because she was ready to kind of leave abruptly. Right. So interestingly, her family hopes that she was just on the road with the traveling carnival that she'd previously worked for during the summer. Okay.
1: Yeah. When you said traveling Not to herbal, I was like, excuse me.
0: <laughs> I don't We're still right?
1: using that as a as a potential? <laughs>
0: no, no. She had ju- she had worked for them previously. But Angeline's mom left messages for her at the shelter that she knew she frequented. And then the Carnegie Center was which is an organization that kind of helps victims of domestic violence and right. i think it kind of works in conjunction with the shelter and none of those messages were returned and that's when the family got concerned because they figured that at least the shelter and that carnegie center would have had some kind of contact with her or been able to contact right. her, her former roommate all right. of that three months after angeline disappeared the north vancouver rcmp opened a file on her three months very quick action yep hmm so quick, yeah. So, I'm thinking that that really only happened because of the next thing I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. So, an inquiry was submitted by the news outlet, the Globe and the Ma the Globe and Mail, and so the RCMP outlined all the actions they took to try and find Angeline between late May and August of 2011. Okay. So this is what they're telling the Globe and Mail. On June 20th, a note was added to the file that Angeline might be in Alberta. Super unclear why the RCMP thought that. Okay. So there wasn't any indication. Yeah. I I don't know if they were confusing this with Caitlin's case or, I mean, I guess Caitlin's case actually hadn't happened yet. So maybe. True. Maybe not. Maybe not. But still. But yeah. But I mean. Yeah. Come on, people. Yeah. Yeah, man. So on July 1st and July 25th, The North Vancouver RCMP asked the Alberta RCMP to check their databases for Angeline. And in between those two dates, the RCMP interviewed Angeline's former employer and went to various banks and government agencies, I assume, to check on her bank accounts and any government assistance that she might be receiving Right. Which is something I, I see a lot in these cases. If there's a welfare yep. check or something like that, if they see that the check's being cashed or it's being collected just to throw shade, the RCMP is probably going to be, oh, they're fine.
1: Yeah. They're going to, they're not going to speculate anything further than, oh, they're cash. It is, is what it is.
0: Yeah. yeah. They're cashing their checks. It is they what just, it is. Yeah. They don't want you to find them. Yeah. So on August 16th, the first public missing persons alert was issued. Again, this is a couple months. After she was last seen, then in October of 2011, her case was transferred to the serious crimes unit. And this was almost six months after she was last seen.
1: So, yeah, that's that's a long time. That's a long time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's in your case, maybe somebody remembers something from 27 years ago. But yeah, what were you doing 27 years ago in your investigation to try to speak to whoever you needed to speak to? Yeah. That's why you have the interviews that you conduct and these people that you talk to and the door knocking that you go do. Because if you want the best case scenario for that, it's talking to them almost immediately after it happened because it's so fresh in your mind.
1: Isn't it usually within the first 48, that's when you're going to get the most critical information because it's still so fresh. And usually within the first 48 is kind of the safety net for people to be located or for progression to happen in a case or someone to be found. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's six months later. I mean maybe somebody remembers something, but if you're looking for any kind of surveillance, that's going to be long gone. Yeah. Oh, so I I don't obviously know this for sure, but in so many cases I read about the fact that most people just record over after a certain point, it's not even that they delete it. It just, they use the same tape or whatever it is. It just records and resets itself basically after a certain period of time. And so if they don't know that you're looking for that or that you want that information, they're not going to stop and be like, oh, let me just save this real quick. They don't have
1: any... Intel or notion to do that unless already asked by
0: police to do that, right? Exactly. So... According to the RCMP, they've received over 100 tips and several locations have been searched. But it's unclear where exactly those locations are because they've also said that there's no quote unquote resoundingly obvious location to search. What? So in my mind, it's, well, which is it?
1: Wouldn't you look back at her history and just look at all the hotspots? spots? Yeah. Where she last lived, where she lived before that, workplace, friends, family. Wouldn't you look at the
0: hotspots? And I, obviously, you can tell the police whatever you want, but did you ask where she was when you talked to her on the phone or where she was planning to be? You just took her at her word that she's not in the area? What does that even mean?
1: Well, and not only that too, but could they not trace the call? I mean, I don't know the fine details of call tracing. So I don't, I don't know if that could have been done or if it could still be backlogged and retraced. I don't know. I don't know if it's the same as finding an IP address, but
0: it has to be an option. And it almost seems to, why wouldn't you do it in this case? Because even before she went missing, she had this warrant out, for her arrest so at the very least don't you want to find her for that purpose exactly it just doesn't sense. if you don't care about her as just a missing person in general why do you not care about oh hey we have this person with an active warrant on them maybe we should just run this call to be oh where is she in case she doesn't turn herself in yep so Calden moved out of that apartment after angeline's disappearance The RCMP say he's been questioned, he has submitted a polygraph test, and he's cooperated with their investigation. It's super clear that her family believes that Calden is involved somehow, but it doesn't appear that Mm. the RCMP has ever publicly named him as a suspect. Interesting. Okay. So, and I think a lot of that from the family's perspective is the history of abuse and just kind of volatile relationship that they had. So Angeline's case is currently classified as a missing persons investigation with foul play suspected. Essentially, they've kind of presumed that she was the victim of foul play.
1: Right. They suspect that she's more than likely deceased, unfortunately. Correct.
0: So there have been some alleged sightings that I kind of alluded to in Port Hardy, Grand Prairie, and Kamloops. But again, investigators weren't able to corroborate any of these sightings and so it just never really led anywhere if you can't corroborate it you can't really confirm yeah obviously they didn't find her looking in those areas so sadly angeline's mother molly died of a heart attack in 2017 oh so she never found out what happened to her daughter and Angeline's son, Daryl Jr., according to one of the articles I read, he last saw his mom in April of 2011, so about a month before she went missing. She brought him a Detroit Red Wings jersey, which is his favorite hockey team. Oh! And according to Daryl Sr., his dad, Jr. loves playing hockey, just both of his parents. And the most heartbreaking thing that I read for this case and probably any case I've covered more recently is that Daryl Jr. wants to play hockey so that, quote, if he gets famous, his mom will find him, end quote. That breaks my fucking heart.
1: Oh, yeah, that that tugs at the heartstrings. I mean, yeah, I. it's already a sad case, but that piece of information, it's
0: oof. Oof. And it just, it makes me so sad because there's clearly, clearly she was a good mom and she loved him and she showed him that love because he wouldn't say something that otherwise. Very true. And just not to have answers for him is so heartbreaking. There's gotta be some little piece in his mind that just thinks she went off and she doesn't care about me. she doesn't love me, she just abandoned me and i I hope that's not the case. I don't really think that that's the case, but it makes me so sad that there's probably a little voice in his head that says that and exactly. So, Yeah. So Angeline has a butterfly tattoo on her chest. She has a scar on her left knee and a birthmark on her left wrist. There's a $5,000 reward being offered for information in Angeline's case. And if you have any information on the disappearance of Angeline Pete, please call the North Vancouver RCMP at 604 985-1311 or the Quatsino Band Council at 250-949-6245. Wow. Well, thank you for bringing
1: light to those cases because, once again, I hadn't heard of either of those cases. And I'm hoping with all three of the cases we discussed, plus the information you provided, people listening can take that information educate themselves further. And who knows, maybe something can come out for all three of them. I hope
0: so. We'll obviously put all of the information in our show notes. For sure. So that you can find that easily accessible. And yeah, I mean, just listen, share them. Just because you think something isn't important, it's you don't know what the police and investigators are going to think is important. And so anything that should be shared because you You just can't know. They don't share every piece of the case with us. And so we can't possibly know what's going to be important to them. I I would really encourage, I mean, it's just in all cases too, if you see something, say something, but especially in these cases that just don't get the coverage that other cases do, it really is going to take somebody coming forward especially in our missing person cases, because they're just, there's no uh, closure. It's so hard to live. If you want to rewind back to all those phone numbers we've mentioned, we'll also post
1: them in the show notes. And just want to say thank you, Elise, for educating me on those cases and bringing your information to this episode. And of course, for Agreeing to come back on with me and doing this collaboration. And I think from the both of us, we just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Hopefully, we've done some justice in talking about these cases. And you never know, maybe we'll do this again and talk about some other missing and murdered Indigenous women cases down the road. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we look forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show you can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, You can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.